Well, let's uh, open in prayer. Father, thanks so much for a gorgeous day out and for allowing us to be here to study your word. I pray that you would teach us. Thank you so much for your Holy Spirit that guides us into all truth. And I pray that we would understand and uh, be filled with, his, with your spirit, that we may know the things that you would teach us in Christ's name. Amen. Um, last week, your sort of fun homework assignment was to pretend that you're Mork. I remember Mork and Mindy. Some of you aren't probably old enough to remember that show. Um, but Mork from Mork. And uh, his job was to come to Earth and try to find out what's going on and report back, I guess, to the big head, I guess is the way it works. He had to report back to the big head on uh, what he found. And your assignment was, assume you're Mork and your job is to find out what this Holy Spirit is. And you get to go look at TV and try to figure out what this is. You've never heard of it before in your life. You don't know what it is. So your job is to find out and report back to the big head. So with that in mind, and if all you had was Christian TV to look at, tell me what your impression of the Holy Spirit would be. What? Genie in the bottle. Alright. He sort of pops out and does what you want him to do. If you rub the lamp the right way, you get so many wishes, right? A piggy bank. Maybe I should spell that right. Piggy bank. Uh, he's God's piggy bank. You know, if you need some money or you need some help, you know, you can crack open the piggy bank and get whatever it is that you need. Uh, Casper the Friendly Ghost. Okay. Um, yeah, we use the term Holy Ghost, and a lot of people say, geez, what's that? You know, some ghost out there because they're thinking Casper or whatever. How about uh, if I were more for more watching TV, the Holy Spirit would be someone who definitely makes you do two things. Wonderful. He makes you get very frenzy in your interaction with him. Uh, and or he makes you speak Bizarre behavior. I probably, I probably spelled that. How do you spell bizarre? There you go. No. Okay, bizarre behavior. It's not in my, um, it's not in my uh, spell check thing. Bizarre behavior. B-I-Z-A-R-R-E. B-I-Z-A-A-R. No E at the end. All right, this is this. Hey, we got it right. All right, and I'm spelling behavior as an English person, which I shouldn't do. Bizarre behavior, and he makes you speak funny. Right? Anything else? Heals people. How do you know he heals people? You watch Ernest Angel. All right. Oh yeah, you got, you got to put that down with Benny Hinn. Slays people. In other words, he knocks them out. 
I think you see what's going on here. What, what, what do you see here happening? It's a mockery, isn't it? It's a mockery. What is idolatry? We defined that back when we did theology proper. What? Putting anything or anybody in the place of God, that's one thing. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Um, remember the Israelites when they came out of Egypt and they made the golden calf. Who were they worshiping? The image of the golden calf. But who were they really worshiping? What did they say? Remember when they made the golden calf, they said, This is the God which has brought us out of Egypt. They were worshiping the right God. Because they've just been brought out of Egypt, folks. You know, you can't get over that. But how do they characterize the true God? With an idol. Idolatry can be worshiping the true God the wrong way. Just as much as it can be worshiping the wrong God the wrong way. Okay? And in a sense, in some sense, a lot of us are, a lot of Christians are idolaters because they got the right God. Supposedly, they're worshiping them the wrong way, or they have a misrepresentation of the God that is. That's why God says, I don't want you to make any graven images because I don't want you to follow up what I really am. And whenever we make a graven image or we create God in our own image or we make God out to be something we want him to be, instead of what God has said he is, we become idolaters. And I would suggest that 99.9% of the charismatic movement, as you find it in churches today, is idolatrous. Because they've created a Holy Spirit that is not the Holy Spirit of the Bible. Look at some of these things. The Holy Spirit is the genie in the bottle. There are those on TV that say that we can command God. We can tell God what we want Him to do. Think about that. Think of the audaciousness of telling God what you want Him to do for you. As though somehow God owes it to me. They create me as sovereign instead of God as sovereign. And quote after quote, and we're going to talk about some of these later on in the, in the course. Quote after quote of some of these supposed Christian leaders who command God to do this and command the Holy Spirit to do that. And make the Holy Spirit sort of their servant. That's idolatry. You don't order God around. Or they make him into a piggy bank. You have financial problems, the Holy Spirit will solve them for you. God will solve them for you. I think, um, was it, uh, it was, um, it wasn't Humbard, it was, uh, who's, the, who's the other guy from uh, Akron? Ernest Angel. No, it wasn't Ernest Angel. His son now is in the ministry. I, I'm drawing a complete blank on it right now. Okay. No, he, was, he stood in a fountain and poured water over his wallet and basically said, if you need money, you just command your angels to go get it for you and they will do that they're under obligation huh no 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 huh Roberts Roberts the Roberts boy yeah um that's ludicrous God is not a piggy bank God does not exist to make you happy and give you money and everything else some make God into Casper the friendly ghost you know sort of this fun loving kind of thing out there others 
see him as bizarre behavior. In fact, this is the problem. In some circles, the more bizarre the behavior, the more the Holy Spirit is involved. Um, you go up to the Toronto, a few years ago, I remember the Toronto Blessing, it was called, up at the Toronto Vineyard, at the airport up in Toronto. And uh, that's where the holy laughter came from. And basically, their spin on it was the Holy Spirit would make you roll around in uncontrollable fits of laughter. And so they would go, I'm not making it up, um, they would, you would go to church there, and, and the more you laughed and rolled around, the more empowered by the Spirit you were. And soon after that, they followed the holy bark, the holy growl, where the Spirit would make you act like animals. I'm not making this up either. They had church services where you would be growling like a lion, and people would say, wow, he's really filled with the Spirit. Seems to me, if you look at the Bible, the people who made sounds like animals were not Holy Spirit possessed, but demon possessed. But the more bizarre the behavior, the more the Spirit is in there. And then he makes you speak funny, and the funnier you speak and the more you prattle on, the more filled with the Spirit you are. This is the tongues movement. We're going to talk about that. Holy Spirit heals people. You see healing surface after healing surface, and what most people don't understand is all of that is a sham. There's no real healing going on there. They had specials on TV that exposed the techniques of a lot of these people. Can God heal? Sure he can. God can heal. God can do anything he wants to do. But God does not heal the way he did in the New Testament where you have somebody come in and touch you and you get out of bed. If healing were true, and we're going to talk about this in length, if we had the New Testament gift of healing, someone here had the New Testament gift of healing, they could walk down to Leary Memorial Hospital and empty every bed. You don't see that happening. What do you see? You see shows. People with headaches, lower back pain, whatever. How do you verify those healings? You don't. When you look at biblical healing, what did Christ do? He put arms back on, ears back on. He gave sight to somebody who's been blind for 40 years. These are instantaneous healings. There wasn't any, well, I'm healed, I'm getting better stuff. They were instantaneously healed. The guy that was paralyzed for his life at the, at the pool of Bethesda, Christ healed him and got up and walked. You don't see that in the modern charismatic movement. You see a big show. And that's not what the Holy Spirit is all about. And then Benny Hinn came along and created the slaying in the Spirit, where he'll do it a section at a time and... He'll just wave his hand and people will fall over, supposedly in the Spirit. The more bizarre the behavior, the more the Holy Spirit is evident. And I would suggest that that is all, and we're going to find out in this class, that is complete idolatry. That is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not make you act in a bizarre, irrational manner. What did God say to the, to the Israelites in Isaiah 1? He said, come let us reason together, says the Lord. God brings order, stability. God does not bring bizarre behavior. And in the New Testament, whenever you see people acting in a bizarre, irrational way, that was not the Holy Spirit, that was a demon that had to be cast out. And when the demon was cast out, people got into their right mind. Remember the maniac at Gadara? When, the, when Christ cast the demons out, people came, they, say, they saw him in his right mind and they were amazed. Here was somebody that acted in a bizarre, irrational manner. And now all of a sudden he's behaving normally. The Holy Spirit is not one to make you act in a bizarre, irrational way. The Holy Spirit is very rational. 
And when we look at the Holy Spirit today, what we're going to do is do a little jet tour of the personality and work of the Holy Spirit, who he is, the personality really today. And we're going to hit his work in a later, um, in some later sections on his work in um, the transmission of the scripture. You know, the Holy Spirit is behind you having your Bible. In fact, it is the Holy Spirit that enables you to understand a word I'm saying and a word that God says. Without the Holy Spirit, you cannot understand the Scripture. Without the Holy Spirit, you would not know spiritual truth. He's the one who guides us into all truth. But when we look at the Holy Spirit, we find that we have to ask the question, what is the Holy Spirit? And the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity, which implies that he has what? Personality. Will. He's a person. Now, this is one of the things that all the major cults get fouled up on. If you go to Mormonism, you go to Jehovah Witnesses, whatever, they have different spins. But basically, they say the Holy Spirit is like this force of God. It's like the force of the Star Wars. This impersonal power of God that, that, is, do, that does things. But as far as being an active person with a will and an emotion... They would deny that. Um, let's look up these scriptures. Have somebody look up Romans 8 and somebody else look up the other ones here. And let's read what these scriptures have to say about the Holy Spirit. If someone has Romans 8, just go ahead and read that. Now he who searches the heart knows the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. How about verse 34? Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. The Holy Spirit has a mind. Implied in a mind is what? Knowledge. Intellect. Um, the Holy Spirit is a sentient being. All right? Throughout the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is never seen as this impersonal, ethereal force. The Holy Spirit is a person. 1 Corinthians 2.10. Somebody have that one? But we know these things because God has revealed them to us by the Spirit, and the Spirit searches out everything and shows the so the Holy Spirit searches things out. The fact that the Holy Spirit does that implies that he has personality, he has a will, he has a mind, he has intellect. The Holy Spirit knows what we think. How about uh, 1 Corinthians 12:11? This is spiritual gifts. We're going to talk two weeks on this later on. But basically what it says there is the Holy Spirit is the one who gives you a spiritual gift. And he is the one who decides which spiritual gift you have. So the fact that he makes a decision implies that he has a will. He has the ability to choose. The Holy Spirit has will. How about Acts 16, 6 through 7? This is Paul. After they were come to Mysia, 
about 16.10? So what you have here is you have the Holy Spirit who is guiding Paul in his ministry. Now, for the most part, how did Paul determine what town to go to next? How did he do that? No. How would you do that? No. You look at a map, right? I mean, if I'm in Elyria and I need to preach the gospel, I have a few places I can go, right? I can go to Lorraine, I can go to Grafton, I can go, you know, I can go east, west, north, south. You know, he looked at a map. I mean, if you look at Paul's missionary journeys, for the most part, he followed a trade route. Okay, he's now in Iconium. The next town on the, on the road is Lystra. And then we head off to Derby. So for the most part, Paul looked at a map. But that does not imply that the Holy Spirit could not at any point intervene and say, no, don't go that way. Was the intervention here in verses 9 and 10, both of which talk about a vision? Paul's, Paul, what they did is they got over to the edge of Turkey, which is really the western edge of Turkey. So you got the Mediterranean Sea. So your only decision is, okay, I go south, south, or west, or north, right? Well, I just came from the south, so let's go west. No, or east, I mean. Go west, you can wind up in the ocean. Let's go east, and the Holy Spirit said no. Let's go north, the Holy Spirit said no. And then what happens? He has the vision. And the vision says, go west. So he hopped the boat and went over to Europe. All right. What you see there is the leading of the Holy Spirit. And this is something that, that, that we're, we're going to talk about the leading of the Spirit. A lot of times what Christians do is they make the leading of the Spirit this super mystical thing. You know. Before I, you know, I get up in the morning, before I decide what pair of pants to put on, I better pray to make sure I get the right pair of pants. Alright? Go to the closet, find a clean pair of pants and put them on. Alright? That, that's not, you know, God does not, some people have made this, this will of God such a mystical, odd thing that they're scared to death to do anything for fear that they're going to do something that God doesn't want them to do. God's given you a brain, He's given you an intellect. Now, that does not mean at any point in time you need to be sensitive to the movings of the Holy Spirit. But it's weird. Some people think if they don't wear the right clothes, they're out of the will of God. If they don't go to the right place, they're out of the will of God. I had a friend of mine who made some of the dumbest decisions on a known planet. And um, I'd ask him, what are you doing? Well, you know, I think God wants me to do this. I said, that's not God. That's you. God does not make you do stuff like that. That's dumb. All right, God is not irrational. What is God's will for you? God's will is for you is that you go to work and do a good job. You know, that's part of God's will is that you do an excellent job for your employer. You don't need to pray about that. You need to do it. Now, may God lead you to some other vocation? Sure, you can do that. But until then, what do you do? Good job and the best job you can for the company you're in. Whether you like it or not, that's, that's what God has called you to do. Don't make the will of God this super hyper mystical thing that, that you're constantly trying to, to find the secret code, waiting for him to, to drop a rock on your head or something like that. 
Use your head. Paul, for the most part, Paul said, I'm called to be a missionary. I'm called to be an evangelist. I'm called to plant churches. So I'm in Lystra. I'm going to go to the next, ro- next town on the road. And that's what he did. Now, there are times when God brings detours. And we need to allow the Holy Spirit to do that. But implied in that is that the Holy Spirit does lead. The Holy Spirit has a will. The Holy Spirit helps us understand the mind of God. He gives us understanding, spiritual understanding. And the Holy Spirit can lead us. But the Holy Spirit leads us rationally, not bizarrely. I just want to underscore uh, John 14, 26, which I think strongly emphasizes that, that thought process about revealing the Word of God and teaching us to us. And Scripture reads, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the power will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Holy Spirit is the one who reveals to us the will of God. Now, he, we're going to talk a little bit about the will of God in a later class. But the will of God is not as tough to figure out as most people make it out to be. And the reason being is because God has revealed a great amount of his will already to you. You just need to do it. The Bible tells you what the will of God is. It's the will of God that we be sanctified. What does that mean? Holy. That's God's will. It's God's will that you be a pure person. It's God's will that you give thanks. It's God's will that you suffer for Christ. It's God's will that you be filled with the Spirit. When you usually talk about God's will, people say, well, you know, who am I supposed to marry? And they're all confused about who they want to marry. You know, it's God's will. Who, who should I marry? Who, 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 where should I go to work? I'll, I'll tell you how I figured out who I married. I found somebody, I fell in love with her, and I married her. Now, did I pray about it along the way? Sure I did. I let God lead. But how did God lead me? Did I get a rock on my head one day to say, Mary Donna Porter? No, I didn't see that. I didn't get any, you know, dream. I didn't get a vision. I didn't pick up a piece of paper on the side of the street and say, Donna Porter. Didn't happen. I found someone and... We were both committed to the Word of God. We were both committed to Christ. We loved the Lord. And uh, God led us together. And I have no doubt that that's who I was supposed to marry. Now, of course I prayed about it. Of course I asked God, don't let me make a mistake. Give me the right person. But God led me to the right person. And I don't look back and say, boy, you know, I really messed that up. I should have married someone else. I don't do it. God leads us rationally. We need to be sensitive to His leading and allow Him to interfere at any point. But God leads us rationally. God will lead you vocationally in the same way. And God, here's the other thing. God wants you to do His will a lot worse than you want to do His will. God wants you to know and do His will. God's not going to play celestial hide-and-seek and you know, see how He can trick you into making a bad decision or going the wrong way. God wants to lead you. And He leads you through His Word, through through His Spirit. And if you are committed to the Word, you're committed to, the, to, to holiness, you're committed to sanctification, and you pray and ask God to lead you in the way you should go, God will take you up on that and show you where to go. We'll talk a lot more about that in a later session. But God leads us, and He leads us because the Holy Spirit has a will. And He makes the will of God known 
to us if we allow him to lead us. He has personality. The Holy Spirit speaks. Let's look these verses up real quick. Um, Acts 8.29. And somebody look those, up those on, on ahead as well. Alright, so remember Philip was, uh, had a big uh, revival going on in uh, I think it was Samaria and uh, the Holy Spirit took him and transported him down to the middle of the desert and then said, I want you to go up and talk to that guy in the chariot. The Holy Spirit speaks. Now, does the Holy Spirit speak like that today? Audibly? I don't think so. doesn't mean God can't. But God does not speak through visions and dreams like he did in the New Testament. But God does lead us. And if you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, you can feel his prompting, his leading in your life. In this case, Philip, in the case of Philip, he was told, go and join yourself to that chariot, the Ethiopian eunuch. How about Acts 10.19? While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. The Spirit spoke to Peter and talked to this is the um, Cornelius incident where Peter was told to go and talk to Cornelius. And he had to be told by the Spirit because otherwise he wouldn't have done that. Jews did not go into the homes of Gentiles. The Holy Spirit had to do a special work to get him out and in there. But the Holy Spirit spoke to Peter. How about Acts 13 too? This is the separating of Paul and Barnabas for the first missionary journey, Acts 13. Who decided it was Paul and Barnabas? Holy Spirit. Told the church, I want these two guys to go and be, have, I have a work for them. I have a job for them. How about uh, Revelation? Well, we don't need to read the whole Revelation 2 and 3. But in Revelation 2 and 3, again and again and again, you read the Spirit says to the churches. churches. The Spirit says to the seven churches. It's the Holy Spirit who is speaking. Now, an impersonal, ethereal force does not speak. A person speaks. A sentient being speaks. And this is what we're talking about here. How about the Romans 15.30? So the Spirit loves. Now, does an ethereal force have emotions? No. Personality. Persons have emotions. The Spirit loves. How about Ephesians 4.30? So don't grieve the Spirit. Can you grieve an impersonal force? No. The Spirit is a person. How about Romans 8.26? All right. The Holy Spirit prays for us. This is inter-Trinitarian. 
Now, now, don't let somebody tell you that this is where they have their own private prayer language and this is tongues. That's not at all what this verse is saying. These are groanings which can't be uttered. These are unutterable groanings. And what is this saying here? It's saying that, do you know exactly what you should be praying for all the time? I don't. I don't. I don't know what I should be praying for, but who does know what I should be praying for? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit intercedes for me with groanings which can't be uttered. This is intertrinitarian communication here. And the Spirit intercedes for me with the Father. And when I don't know what I should be praying for, the Holy Spirit does, and the Holy Spirit makes intercession for me. This is not an impersonal force, folks. This is a person. And implied in the fact that He prays for me is the fact that He cares for me. Right? He knows. He understands. He knows what I need from the Father. There, there are many times, folks, when I go to God and say, you know, I have no idea what I need to be praying for. In fact, I don't even know what I need. But you do. And I leave it to the Holy Spirit to intercede for me when I don't know what I should pray for. And I find myself doing that with a lot of people sometimes. You know, we, we, I have situations in my family that I, I went... I remember going to God on many occasions and saying, you know, I don't even have a suggestion on this one. I have no idea what to pray for. It's a mess. And any suggestion I have would probably make it worse than it is. So would you just take care of it, Father? And I think the Holy Spirit in those cases takes our heart, our desires, and communicates that to the Father and intercedes for us. He is our intercessor. This is person. This is not an ethereal force. When we look at um, the Holy Spirit and we ask ourselves, okay, we know He's a person, we know He's an entity, but was He a created being? And the answer is, well, no, He is God. How do we know that? Well, we see if He has the attributes of deity, right? Psalm 139 is a great psalm. We don't have time to read the whole thing. But what it basically says, where shall I go from thy spirit or where shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend into the heavens, you're there. If I go to the pits of the hell, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and fly to the uttermost part of the earth, there you are. No matter where I go, no matter, I can't get away from the spirit of God. Therefore, the spirit of God is omnipresent, which is an attribute of deity. By the way, there's only one omnipresent being in the universe. God. Everybody else is local. Satan is local. You know that Satan is not omnipresent. He's a localized being. We are localized beings. God alone is omnipresent. Everywhere at the same time in equal measure as we talked about. And the fact that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent implies that the Holy Spirit has the the qualities of deity. In 1 Corinthians 2.10, we already sort of looked at that. He is omniscient. Who knows the mind of the, of the Lord? We have the Holy Spirit who gives us the mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit searches all things and knows everything, even the deep things of God. In fact, let's, let's, let's read that. That's, a, that's an important passage there. Somebody got 1 Corinthians 2.10 through 11? For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. 
For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. All right, he's using an analogy there. How do I know? Can I know what you're thinking? No. I can't do that. You know what you're thinking, right? You know what your thoughts are. And what it's saying here is, who is it that knows the thoughts of God, the deep things of God? The Spirit of God. He knows everything. If He knows everything God knows, and God is omniscient, what is the Holy Spirit? Omniscient. The Spirit knows everything. The Spirit understands everything. Therefore, if you want to know about yourself, where do you go? To a psychologist? Sorry. No, you don't, because the psychologist doesn't know what you're thinking. I mean, they can probe and, you know, find some things out, but ultimately, I don't even know what I'm thinking half the time, right? And my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And even when I think the best of myself, I'm faking myself out. But I can't fake out the Holy Spirit. He knows my heart perfectly and he's the one that can help me understand what I'm really thinking even when I don't want to admit that that's what I'm really thinking uh, yeah I want to just backtrack to your statement which I agree with about Satan uh, being local and how therefore somebody could ask the question well if that's true and he's only in one place at one time how is it that all around the world, his equal is being felt. And isn't the answer because of all of his demons yeah. work for him? Yes. Yeah. They're all against God's plan. He, he, is a, he is, has an organized, there's organized spiritual wickedness. In fact, what it says in Ephesians is that the spirits of wickedness, which are Satan and his demons, they're organized. They have a plan. But Satan is not, and this is interesting here, we're going to talk about this in a later course. Satan is not out to get you to sin, personally. Probably none of us have ever had Satan around us, personally. Does that mean that his demons or we can't be tempted by a demonic? For sure. But 99.999% of your sin has nothing to do with a demon, has everything to do with your flesh. That's you. You're the enemy. Can Satan tempt us? Sure he can. But by and large, every time you sin, it's not because there's a demon making you do something. And we'll get to that at a later point. But that's a good point. Satan is localized. His demons are localized. But they're organized. Yeah. And that's a lot of them. God, however, is omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time and knows everything that's going on. Genesis 1-2 talks about the spirit brooding over the waters in the in the work of creation, implying omnipotence, power. The Holy Spirit can do the works of God. And, and, and the Holy Spirit was evident in, the, in creation. And remember when God said, let us make man in our image. Who's the us? The Trinity. Alright, there's, there's more than one there. There's the Trinity. Plural. It's plural. He is, and by the way, one of the things interesting in Hebrew that you'll find out, if you ever study Hebrew, is they have the singular, dual number, and then plural. And the Elohim is not dual number. That's two. 
is plural, which means there's more than two. So that's an interesting thing in the Hebrew language. He is eternal. Hebrews 9.14 talks about the eternal spirit. All right, what being is eternal? On two ends. The backwards and the forwards. God, right? We're eternal in the sense we'll never die, but we had a starting point. God did not have a starting point. God always was. The Spirit is eternal. Therefore, if the Spirit is eternal, the Spirit always was existent, which means He has to be God. He was never created. Acts 5, 3 and 4 is an interesting passage. Let's have somebody look that up. This is a good passage to use in this. Somebody read that. This is Ananias and Sapphira. The Ananias and Sapphira incident. All right. Notice, anybody take um, geometry in school? Remember all geometry? If angle A is equal to angle B, then angle C is equal to angle A, then C is equal to B. I remember all those old proof theorems. Well, what do you find in here? Well, Peter, first of all, says, Ananias, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he said, don't you know that you lied to God? So if I lie to the Holy Spirit and I lie to God, what's implied about the Holy Spirit and God? They're equal. They're equal. The implication there is lying to the Holy Spirit is equivalent to lying to God, which means that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. He is equal to the Father and the Son. It's interesting when you look at, for example, the baptismal formula. Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh, gee, where'd that come from? Well, the Holy Spirit is God. We've proved that Christ is God. The Holy Spirit is God. In Matthew 3:16 and 17, we have the Spirit who leads Christ out in the wilderness to be tempted. Remember? I think it's Matthew 4, I think, is that one. The temptation. All right. But what you have, and in Matthew 3, you have the baptism of Christ. Remember when he is baptized, the voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased, and the Spirit of God descending as a dove. Whenever you see this, you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are equally God. The Holy Spirit is God. And therefore, that's why... When we look at this concept of, you know, the boys on TV who mischaracterize the Holy Spirit, you're mischaracterizing God. You realize that the Holy Spirit is God. And when you create a Holy Spirit that is not the Holy Spirit of the Bible and make Him out to be something He is not, that is equivalent to blasphemy. That's a blasphemous thing. It's very dangerous to go down that route. I don't want to go down that route. That's no different than making Christ out to be something He is not. Or making God out to be something, God the Father out to be something He is not. It's a very serious thing. 
And in fact, later on, we're going to look at this. What member of the Trinity is the one that brings conviction of sin and regeneration? The Holy Spirit. If you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you shut out your only hope of redemption. Is the Holy Spirit that brings conviction of sin? Is the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, that regenerates us? What is regeneration? To make alive. You're dead. We are spiritually dead. D-E-A-D, dead. We're a body on a slab in a morgue. And we're not going to get up and walk out on our own. The Bible says that we are spiritually dead. We're in darkness. And it's the Holy Spirit that quickens us, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, brings life, regenerates us, gives us life. And when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and that's what Christ was telling the Pharisees in Matthew 13, you can, you can say some bad things about me, but if you say bad things about the Holy Spirit, that's not going to be forgiven you in this life or the life to come. If you ascribe the works that I am doing, remember all the miracles that Christ did? The healings, the raising of the dead, everything. What did the Pharisees say he was doing that by the power of? Satan. Satan, Belzebub. And Christ said, wait a minute. Don't go there. If you take what I am doing, if you take the works of the Holy Spirit and you ascribe them to Satan, and you're saying that I am working by the power of Satan, when I am working by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are affronting the very member of the Trinity that brings conviction of sin and regeneration, you are sunk. You can't be saved. You can't be regenerated. That's a very dangerous thing to go down that path. As he, he's telling the Pharisees. You don't want to do that. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is a member of the Trinity. He deserves all of the reverence that any member of the Trinity deserves. He is God. Now, we're going to find that in the drama of redemption, each of the members of the Trinity plays a unique role, right? The Holy Spirit regenerates. The Holy Spirit brings new life. And the Holy Spirit points us to Christ. And who does Christ point us to? The Father. They work together in the drama of redemption. But the Holy Spirit is God. Let's look at some of the names of the Holy Spirit. We don't have a lot of time. So we won't look up all these passages. I would, I would recommend that you do that just to fill in your, your understanding of the Holy Spirit. He's called the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. Now, what would that imply about Christ and God? Same. In fact, in Romans 8 and 9, it talks about the Spirit of Christ. It talks about the Spirit of God. It equates the two, which would imply to me that God and Christ are the same. They're deity. All right. He is the eternal spirit. He had no beginning, no end. Uh, a good one is the spirit of truth. Now, that's a very important concept. Dan is going to talk about this in some length in, in, in August coming up here. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings truth. This is the thing to understand. You have truth, and anything that is not true is what? False. How many truths do you have? One. A lot of error, one truth. The Spirit is in the truth business. The Spirit is not going to give us anything in error. There's no mistakes. So if you want to know the truth about anything, where should you go? It's not a trick question. To the Spirit, who teaches us through the Word of God. That's where you find truth. 
That's where you find truth. He is the spirit of truth. He's the spirit of grace. Hebrews 10.29 talks about doing despite under the spirit of grace. Don't do that. He's the spirit of glory. The spirit of life. I like that one. The spirit that brings spiritual life. You know that, that moment by moment, every one of us in here were born again. We are sustained by the spirit. Our spiritual life, our spiritual connection to God is maintained moment by moment by the power of the Spirit within us. And if the Holy Spirit leaves us, we fall back into the spiritual deadness we came from. And when the Holy Spirit brings life, that's an irreversible thing. He is with us forever. Given us understanding, given us spiritual life. The Spirit of wisdom and revelation, what's that? Wisdom is what? What is wisdom? Not knowledge. There's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. You know some people that are smart, but they're stupid. Right? What to do? Yeah, what's the right thing to do? Discernment. I, here's the facts. What's the right path to take? That's wisdom. Knowledge is figuring out what the paths are. Wisdom is knowing which one to take. And unfortunately, well, you guys got a lot of people in the world. They have a lot of knowledge, but no wisdom. And what this is saying is that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The idea there is where do we find out what God wants us to know? He reveals it to us by His Spirit. And the Spirit uses the Word of God. This is where we find out what we're to do. He is the comforter. This is a great word. Parakletos, called alongside. Christ said, I'm going to go away. And I'm not... And, and the disciples were all worked up because, you know, they've been with Christ for all these years and now he's going to leave them. What's going to happen to them? And Christ says, you know, I'm going to send another comforter. The word for another there is another of the same kind. It's not a different comforter. It's another comforter of the same kind of comforter that I am. And he's going to do something that I'm not going to do. He's going to be with you forever. The Spirit is our comforter. The idea of comforter is not making us feel good, warm and fuzzy and all of that. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about he is the one who's called alongside to encourage us, to help us. The idea of a parakletos is someone who's called alongside to help somebody along. They're called alongside to hold somebody up. The Holy Spirit holds us up. He's the spirit of promise. What's that? Um, the Bible uses the, the picture of a down payment, a ring. If a man marries a, is going to marry a woman, he gives her a, an engagement ring. What's the engagement ring? It's a promise of what? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's not the real marriage yet. But when a man gives a woman a ring, there's a promise, a down payment of a coming marriage. The Bible says the Spirit is our Erebon. That word there, Erebon, in Hebrew, in, in Ephesians 1, the earnest of the Spirit, the Erebon, that is the same word for engagement ring. When we became a Christian, God has given us all the riches of glory. But do we have them now? No, we don't. We're stuck in this world, right? But what has He given us? His Spirit, who is the down payment, the earnest. And the fact that I have a, the Holy Spirit is a promise to me that someday I will have it all. 
If I have the Holy Spirit of God, someday I will have all the riches of glory. The Spirit is my down payment. He's the, the Spirit of promise. He's the Spirit of adoption. What does that mean? I am adopted into God's family. We're going to talk about this word later. Adoptio. It's a, it's a Roman legal term to make a son. The Holy Spirit has made us sons of God. Think about that. I mean, it'd be great to just wind up in heaven and be given a broom and told to sweep the streets, right? But God's gone beyond that. He's made us a son. He has given us a part in His family. We're one of His children. And who did that? The Spirit. Who brings us and places us into the family of God as one of His own. He's the Spirit of holiness. What does that imply? Holiness. Purity. Godliness. Understand this. The Spirit will never lead you to do something against the Word of God. Period. There's a lot of people out there that, you know, they come in through counseling offices. Well, the Holy Spirit is telling me to divorce my wife and marry this cute little woman over here. That's not the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you right now, that is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not going to tell you to do something that is against the Word of God. Period. And there are people that fake themselves out thinking that God is telling them to do this or do that, and that is not God at all. God does not lead you into error. He does not lead you into sin. He does not lead you to violate His Word. He leads you into the truth. So don't let anybody give you that kind of line. The Spirit of faith. What are some of the emblems of the Holy Spirit? These are just pictures. Think of these as types. Remember we talked about the types of Christ? Talk about the emblems of the Holy Spirit. He's seen as a dove. What's the dove? A picture of. Well, peace, purity. The Holy Spirit descended like a dove. In fact, the, the, the picture of the Holy Spirit in, in literature and in art is usually seen as a dove. He's also seen as a water. John 7, 37 through 39 uses that. What's water do? Purify. Purify, life, healing, cleansing. All right. He is seen as oil. Now, when we think of oil, we think of that which goes into the car and keeps us going and it's costing us an arm and a leg. It's but in those days, oil was used to heal. It was a, it was a medicine almost. And if you remember that, remember the story of the Good Samaritan. What happened? Here's a guy that got beat up. And the Samaritan came along, and what did he do to the wounded man? He used oil in the wounds as a healing thing. The Spirit symbolizes light, healing, anointing. The Holy Spirit is seen as a seal. In those days, what was a seal? It was a stamp, right? It was a stamp of ownership. When the king would put his seal on something, that implied he owned that thing. Or when he sealed the door, it implied that only he could open the door. The Spirit is our seal. He has sealed us, which means that we belong to who? Christ. Christ. And that sealing is a permanent sealing. It doesn't come off. The only person that could take off the sealing of the Spirit is the Spirit himself. And he's not going to do that. He is our seal. The Spirit is seen as wind. Remember in uh, the uh, story of Nicodemus, 
right? The Spirit blows where it lists. How do you know that this, the wind is out there? Do you, anybody see wind? You can feel it and you can see its effects, right? How do you know the Spirit is there? You can feel it and you can see the effects. The Spirit is seen as a wind. The wind blows and moves. He's seen as an earnest. We talked about this, the Erebon, the down payment. The promise of a future fulfillment. And just as a wedding or an engagement ring is a promise of a future marriage, the Spirit is a promise to us of a future marriage with our groom, Christ. And it's an irreversible one. God does not give you an engagement ring and then take it back. It's an irreversible thing. He is our down payment. Now, Revelation 19. The Spirit is a promise, a down payment. The Spirit is seen as fire. What's fire do? Well, Exodus 3.2, we have the fire in, in the pillar of fire. It symbolizes God's presence. If as an Israelite you want to know, is God with us, what did you have to do? You open the flap of the tent and look. And there's God. And the pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke. It symbolizes approval, protection, purification. Remember when Isaiah had the, the hot coal put pressed to his lips to purify himself. It's a gift. The idea there is when Christ, when God gave the Holy Spirit, their cloven tongues of fire appeared. And also it's a symbol of judgment. Someday all of those who have rejected God are going to receive the fire of his indignation. That's the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit? He's a person. He is God. He has to be worshipped as God. He has all the attributes of deity. And to worship the Holy Spirit or to think of the Holy Spirit in any way other than what the Scripture tells us is to be an idolater. So starting next week, we're going to start looking at the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. And uh, if you want to get a little bit of... Uh, work a little bit ahead read Romans the first part of Romans 8 Romans 8 up to about verse 17 we're going to be talking about that Romans 8 up to about verse 17 so let's close in prayer remember if you're going to take the course for credit see me after class and um, I have the uh, sign up sheets here Father thank you for this time that we've had to study I pray that you would help us to Worship you the way we should. Thank you so much for your Holy Spirit who guides us in the truth, who teaches us, who is our down payment, who is the promise of the future glory that's coming our way. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for sealing us, for re regenerating us, and for giving us life. And I pray that we would be led by you, and we would be open to what you would have to tell us. In Christ's name, amen.